Great. Well, good evening. Can everyone hear me? It is wonderful to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Um, just by way of a, of a short introduction, thank you for the introduction I've had already. As you can tell, I'm not from around here. Um, I'm originally, I grew up in the States, in the Chicago area. I grew up on a farm in Iowa. And then um, I moved to Chicago to study. And then after I was there, um, I was really active in my church, and I felt the Lord call me to go overseas and to serve in full-time missions. And so at the ripe age of 26, I flew over to Perth, Australia, and I served in full-time missions for about five years. Um, and they sent me to different places, to South Africa, Malaysia, Singapore. Um, I had a wonderful time in uh, Jordan and Palestine and Israel. And then finally, I got to come to London. And in each one of those places, every time I would ask the Lord, um, do you want me to serve? Do you want me to stay here? Um, because I had given my life full time to serve wherever he wanted to send me. And I fully expected, do you know, as we all do, I think, oh, I'll go to Africa and I'm sure that the Lord will have me stay there. And then I went to Jordan and I actually really loved it. And I thought, oh, Arabic, I don't know, but I would give it a go and maybe I can stay. Um, but then actually in 2012, the Lord sent me here and I was um, working with different teams and local churches in the city during the Olympics. And the Lord said, actually, why don't you stay here? And I said, oh, in London, in the UK, I will suffer for the gospel, I will stay here. Um, so it was such a privilege to be here and I, I do adore it here and this culture and thank you for making me feel welcome. Um, and with that note, we are gonna talk tonight about do all roads lead to God? And um, this is a big question. And what I will say as well is that when I started um, in missions, one of the things that we did, of course, we did a lot of mercy ministries, and we did teaching and training, but of course, one of our biggest pushes was to do evangelism, to share the good news that we have. And I thought, right, I'm gonna be a missionary, I'm gonna do this, and someone said, right, Judy, do you wanna come and do evangelism? And I was like, oh, I don't, I think I, I don't actually feel very well. Probably you should probably go and do evangelism and I'll come the next week. And then the next week came and I was like, I'm, I'm still not feeling very well. I was just so nervous about what to say. And as much as I loved the Lord, I had just never actually given it a chance to tell other people the good news. Probably that's just me. You probably all do this all the time, don't you? Is anyone else ever nervous to talk to other people? Well, about anything, really. Oh, you are, oh, you are, good. Um, but what happened is I actually did give it a go and I started telling people about Jesus and I absolutely love it, hence I'm here with you this evening. Um, and I came to study at the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics where we actually look at the toughest questions that people can ask you about God, which just used to absolutely horrify me. And I wondered what would I say and how can I give a good account, but I actually love it. So I just want to say if anyone is feeling nervous tonight, some of you to be honest, are probably better evangelists than me. So I look forward to hearing from you later tonight, those of you who have been out, and those of you who are nervous, let's all learn together. And so what I'd love to do is actually, before we dig in, is just have a time of prayer. So all right, so will you pray with me? So Father, thank you so much that I get to be here with a new family tonight. And thank you that you are here, Holy Spirit. And I ask, Father, that you would speak really clearly through me. And Father, I ask that you would open up all of our minds our ears, our hearts, our spirit. Thank you that you are such a good and wonderful God and that you have important things to teach us. And we say that we're so ready to learn from you, Holy Spirit. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, do all roads lead to God? 
Within this one apologetic question, there are many other questions. For example, within the question, do all roads lead to God, are, how could there be only one way to God? What about all of those other religions? Or, how can you possibly claim that your religion is the only true religion, that you have the one truth? Have any of you ever had this question from, from a coworker, from a friend, in a coffee shop? Yep, lots of heads nodding. What about, this is one of my favorites at the minute, isn't religious exclusivity the main barrier to peace in the world? Or, and finally, isn't Christianity arrogant? So these are all really big, really deep questions that I think and that we think deserve really good answers. So that's what we're going to explore tonight. And in order to kick us off, I actually have a poem by a British journalist called Steve Turner, and it's called The Modern Thinker's Creed. I don't know if any of you have heard it before, but I'm just gonna read it out. Um, and this poem outlines our current cultural worldview. So just listen as I, as I read to you. The Modern Thinker's Creed by Steve Turner. We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and to the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe in the therapy of sin. We believe that adultery is fun. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. The evidence must be investigated and you can prove anything with evidence. We believe there's, this is very tongue in cheek by the way. If you giggle, it is okay. We believe there's something in horoscopes, UFOs, and bent spoons. Jesus was a good man just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same, at least the one that we read was. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. The universe will readjust. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth, except for the truth that there is no absolute truth. <laughs> we believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. So that is the Modern Thinker's Creed by Steve Turner. So this is the world we find ourselves in. We laugh, it's comical, but it's true as well. There are a lot of competing ideas out there. So we're gonna look at the question, are all religions the same? Now, Ravi Zacharias, Dr. Ravi Zacharias says, people assume that the religions of the world are superficially different but fundamentally the same but actually they are fundamentally different and only superficially similar. So let me read that to you again. People assume that the religions of the world are superficially different but fundamentally the same, but actually they are fundamentally different and only superficially similar. Religions are fundamentally different. All religions are not the same. When you look at different religions or worldviews, you will see that they answer the questions of life very differently. And what we're going to do in just a second is we're actually going to go through a worldview chart together and fill it in. 
Um, so if we can go to the next slide. So this is what we're going to do. Can you all see that well enough? So the very first thing we're going to do is look at the top, and this is called a worldview chart. So necessarily, let's just talk for a second about what is worldview. And I think that's often a hard question, but it's best explained with an analogy. So if you could, for a minute, some of you actually wear glasses, and for those of us that don't have them on tonight, imagine that worldview is like a pair of glasses. All right? And if you could, if you could take off your worldview glasses and look at them, that is what worldview is. Worldview is the lens through which you stand and you see the world. Yeah? Um, so, and there's another exercise that you can do to sort of try to think about what sort of a worldview do you yourself come from. So, I'm going to ask you a series of five questions. If you'd like to, you can jot them down. You can tell them to your neighbor quietly. Please stay focused. Or you can just think about them. All right, so first of all, um, what is your gender? You thinking about that? Great. All right, what is your age? Okay. What is your nationality, or where do you come from? Your background? Okay, now think about one sentence that describes your family. Okay, you thinking about that? And now think about one sentence that describes your clan, your peers, your friends, your subculture. You thinking about that? Okay, then mash all those together, and this is who you are, and this is where you sit. And what might that, what, what, do, you, what do you see when you look through your lenses out into the world? And now think about how different that might be from an 80-year-old Hindu woman from Hyderabad, India, who is in the lowest caste system and is very poor. How different might your worldview be from hers? Or again, think about a six-year-old Chinese boy speaking Mandarin and living in a high-rise in Chongqing. Again, what would he see, what would his worldview be as different to yours? So it's really important to note our own worldviews before we look at others. We all have worldview glasses. Another way of looking at it, and this is one of my favorites, um, I actually have a friend from home from Chicago who, we lived in quite a multicultural part of the city, um, and she, she would meet other people. So for example, if she met someone from Britain, she would say, oh, I just love your British accent. And we do, don't we? Americans, we just love British accents. I'm not sure what that's about. Nonetheless, she'd say, oh, I just love your accent. And then we'd meet someone for, from Korea, and she'd say, oh, I just, I adore your Korean accent. What a beautiful accent. And then there was one time that one of our friends said back, oh, I love your accent. She was like, oh, I don't have an accent. <laughs> Do you, has anyone met anyone like this? And as much as we talked to her, we couldn't convince her. We're like, no, but darling, you have an American accent. You're from America, so you have, and she's like, no, no, I don't have an accent. Everyone else has an accent, right? So this is just like worldview. The truth of the matter is we all have an accent, every single one of us, and we all have a worldview. Whether or not someone subscribes to a specific religion or not, I would suggest that we still all have a worldview. Right, so it's important to note our own worldviews before we look at others. Um, that brings up the question, are all worldviews religions? Um, so what we're going to do, if we could have that chart up again, we're going to look at four different worldviews just quickly tonight. We're going to look at the atheist worldview, the animist worldview, the postmodern worldview, and the biblical worldview. 
Now, we could also just as easily, these are just four worldviews that I've picked to, to get us to do the exercise together, but we could easily also put up there Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Judaism, all right? So religion, religions are worldviews. They are a way of seeing the world, but you can have a worldview without necessarily being a religion. So one way to make that simpler is to think of it this way. So in my story, I would suggest that I grew up in, in a predominantly secular worldview. So there was a time, especially in my teenage years, that I wasn't following the Lord, and I was, I, and I was a self-assigned agnostic, and sort of an atheist. So I would say that I mostly grew up in, in a postmodern worldview, right? In a secular worldview of the day, and then I subscribed to an atheist worldview for a little bit. And then when I gave my life to the Lord, which was an incredible day, series of days, um, then I subscribed to a biblical worldview. So within my own life, I have probably been following three different worldviews. And I find that as we talk to people, as I talk to people about Jesus, that is often the case. Because cultures and worldviews also go over top of religions, don't they? So someone that's grown up um, in a secular worldview might also be a Muslim or might also be a Christian. Or we're gonna talk about the animist worldview, which is predominantly in Africa. And so Africa, where you've got in the north, you've got predominantly Muslim and in the south, Christian, but still on the continent is an animist worldview. Does that make sense? So we're gonna go through this together. So that's the top of the chart. Now let's go down the side. What you see there are four really big words, but they're actually quite simple. So we have ontology, epistemology, axiology, and teleology. Now before I lose you, um, they're big words that mean really simple things. And for a start, I learned this trick um, sometime around Oxford, that, that anything with ology actually means talk. So theology means talk about God, right? Sociology means talk about society. Psychology means talk about yourself. So what do these four words mean? So ontology is the origin and nature of reality. So essentially, where did we come from? Yeah? So we're gonna ask the question, where did we come from? And then the last one is teleology, which is our purpose or destiny, or where will we go? Yeah? And in the middle, we have epistemology, which is what is truth and how do we find it? So epistemology is the theory of knowledge. How do I know that I'm right? How do I know that I'm here? How do I know the right person to marry? How do we know what is true? All right? And then axiology is what is of highest value? What do we value the most in life? So is it me? Am I of highest value? Is it God? Is it money? Um, and axiology is linked closely as well to a discipline called aesthetics, which is the question, what is beautiful? All right, so what we're going to actually do is we're going to fill in this chart together. Are you ready? Excellent. All right, so if we can have the next slide. So what I would love actually is we're literally gonna fill it in together. So when I ask you a question, do feel free to shout it out. So. What is the ontology of an atheist worldview? If you, if you were an atheist, what would you say, where would we come from? And before we shout out, shout out answers, the reason that we're doing this is that it's really helpful as we, as we want to share our faith about Jesus with others to really understand where they're coming from and to understand their worldview. And this chart is much simpler than you may think. So, what is the ontology of an atheist worldview? If you're speaking with your atheist friend in a coffee shop, what would they say about where we came from? Random chance, Random chance perfect. Big 
Big Bang, perfect. Yeah, I did. By accident, yeah, exactly. So if you want to put that one up there. Exactly, Big Bang, material. We're, we're all material, but not spiritual. We are a complex chemical reaction. Maybe we're an accident. Perfect. Right, so then, what is the epistemology of an atheist worldview? What is true in an atheist worldview? What's the highest truth? Anyone? What you see, exactly. Someone said, there is no God, exactly, yep, yep. And I would say science, human reason and experimentation, yeah? I'm gonna pop that one up there, yep. Great, and then what is the axiology of an atheist worldview? What is of highest value if this is the worldview that you subscribe to? Happiness, Happiness yep, that can be one, definitely. Creation. creation, yep, and what is the highest form in creation? What is the most evolved thing? Procreation, <laughs> yeah, procreation happens in creation. Themselves, me, you, us, because mankind is the highest evolved thing in creation, right? So you wanna pop that one up there? Exactly, so actually what's of highest value? Well, you are, or I am. Perfect, so then what is the teleology of an atheist worldview? What happens when we die? What is the purpose? Oh, you all got that one. Nothing. It's not applicable, is it? I literally, when I was um, teaching this earlier, someone just put a big N slash A, not applicable. I thought that was brilliant. Great, so that is, um, and what we're doing is you can see the four big questions to a worldview. So that's an atheist worldview. Simple, yeah? Let's try it again with an animist worldview. Now, just give me a little hand. Is anyone familiar with the animist worldview? No, not really. Okay, let me give you a little, a little hint. One of... Um, a really brilliant movie that might be able to help you in this worldview is The Lion King. Give me a little hand if you've seen The Lion King. Excellent, then you're all more familiar than you think. So, what is the ontology of an animist worldview? Where do they think that we... So, yeah, it, well done. Would you like to sing? We will in a minute, wait for it. So, in an animist worldview, everything is spiritual. So where in the atheist worldview, everything was material, right? In an animist, everything is spiritual, and the story of creation has to do with war and a vendetta and family against family. So what you see there then is why there's such um, tribal wars still in Africa. Yeah, do you wanna pop that up there? So everything is spiritual. So then within an animist worldview, what is the epistemology? What is truth? Where would they look for truth? I will give you a hint in the movie it's, his name is Rafiki. Who knows who Rafiki is? He's a monkey. And he is the witch doctor, right? So if everything is spiritual, then necessarily in that worldview, you look to the spirits, you look to witch doctors or divination. Yeah, do you wanna pop that up? All right, next, um, what is of highest value? What is the most important thing then to do in this culture? Different gods, yep. Yep, so basically appeasing the spirits, appeasing the old males. Um, it's a lot about ancestors. Do you remember in the film when um, Simba is talking to Mufasa? He's talking to his father up in the stars. Do you remember that? And it's a lot about speaking to your ancestors. Um, in animistic society, the old males specifically need honor. That's a really important thing, so that's what's of highest value. And then what is the teleology? What do you think happens? Someone already mentioned. 
reincarnate. It's the circle of life. Would you like to sing with me? Okay. It's the circle of life. Exactly. So you, so you go to the spirit world and you have two choices. You either go into the past to be with your ancestors. So I think, according to Disney, that's what Mufasa did. Or you're cursed as a ghost, but time is cyclical. Yeah? Is this a fun game? Are you getting it? Let's do the next one. Okay. In a postmodern worldview, where did we come from? And postmodern, this is sort of, this is, this is the air that we breathe. This is the water that we are swimming in, I would suggest, in, in our current Western societies. So, in a postmodern worldview, what is the ontology? Where do we come from? Who knows, right? It's actually, so it's kind of subjective. Like, I am subjectively right. If I say that I came from here, I came from here. And if you say that you came from here, it's just, it's very subjective. So, you want to pop it up? Who knows, right? So then, what, what is truth in a postmodern worldview? I think you were all probably right. I couldn't hear anything specific, but everything. It's relative. Is that what you said? Yeah. Truth is relative. Have you heard the phrase, well, what is true for me is true for me, and that can be true for you? Is that familiar? Is that something you hear from your friends? That's something that I hear quite often, especially particularly about my Christian faith. Well, that's fine. That can be true for you, but what's true for me? Yeah? Um, so then what is of highest value in a postmodern worldview? Material sometimes? Have you guys... Finding yourself, yeah? Tolerance, yep, that's a really good one, actually, tolerance. What about the phrase YOLO? Who knows what YOLO means? I'm so hip, I learned this like a month ago, what YOLO means. Anyone? Hashtag YOLO means? You only live once, so why not just enjoy it? If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. Do you want me to sing again? If it makes you happy. Do you guys know the song? It can't be that bad. That is a perfect postmodernist song. Now you can think of that when you hear it. Right. Um, so then, what is the purpose or destiny in a postmodern worldview? Where do we go when we die? What happens? Who knows? But let's enjoy the ride. Like, who knows where we're going? Have as much fun as you can before you get there. Is that right? Okay. I think that this is... I'm, I'm, I'm having fun, but it's actually quite a sobering worldview when you think of it. There's not really a an answer to where we came from, nor is there an answer to where we're going, but let's just have fun in the middle. Carpe diem, you only live once. Hashtag YOLO. It's a real thing, isn't it? Right. Let's move on to our last worldview, so the biblical worldview. Okay, guys, we can do this. So, what is the ontology of a biblical worldview? Where did creation, God, did he do it on purpose? He did it on purpose, out of hate, out of love, love. Yeah, so you want to pop it up there? Our, I would suggest, tell me if you're not happy with this, we can debate. Our loving God created us out of an overflow of love on purpose, deliberately. The fall happened. Uh, we were created perfectly, and then we were marred, and we have gifts that are eternal. There's a lot more that we could say, isn't there? But is that a good start? Are we happy? Okay. What is the epistemology of a biblical worldview? Jesus, yeah. What is truth? That was a perfect answer, Jesus. What is truth? What, where else do we find truth? The word, scripture. 
from revelation, from experience, from our church. You wanna pop that one up there? So what is truth in the biblical worldview? Well, truth is absolute. Whereas in, do you remember in the postmodern worldview, it was relative. In our worldview, we subscribe to the, to the belief that truth is absolute. And we find it through revelation, through experience, through tradition and reason, through the scripture, that God always has a good plan. Yeah? Right, what is the axiology of a biblical worldview? So what is of highest value, or how do we live? Perfect, relationship, what else? I would say unity, love, yep. God's story, yep. Forgiveness and repentance, I think, as well. Maybe the fruits of the Spirit, anyone wanna shout those out? Love, joy, yep, exactly. So that's what we value as highest, right? And then what is the teleology of a biblical worldview? What happens when we die? Resurrection. Resurrection, yep, we go to heaven. So I would say it's to be with God, redeemed, restored, like we know what we're, where we're going, we can be certain, can't we? Great, so if you just wanna flip to the next slide. So I'm sure it's pretty small for you to see, but basically, we've just done that. Well done us, you wanna give us a round of applause? You did it. So we've just filled in this worldview chart, and I actually think it's really powerful. When you go through vertically, like we've just done, one of the first things that's very obvious to anyone is how different worldviews are. They have really different answers to life's biggest questions, don't they? What I'd love to spend just a second doing is, as well, um, going horizontal, as we've just gone vertical. And one of the things that you can see is, I think it's a really powerful exercise when you look at epistemology, so what is truth? So I, I, would, I would challenge you, what is truth in your life? Where do you go when you wanna find truth? Do you go to science? Is that where we look? While that is one place that I definitely think we can find truth, is that where you find your complete truth? Do you look to the spirits or potentially to the elders? Do we believe that truth is relative? That you, my truth is my truth and yours is yours? Or do we believe in an absolute truth? It's a powerful exercise, actually. And now let's take the next one. If we go to axiology, what is of highest value? And um, I was actually teaching this about two months ago, and someone said, someone had a really, a really beautiful idea, I think, and it was, they said, Judy, oh, when you look at axiology, um, what we value in life, if you actually look, you can see that if you value anything over and above God, that's an idol, isn't it? And so he said, actually, what you've done is you've listed different idols that are apparent in different worldviews. And I, I went home and I thought about that for a really long time, but actually it's very biblical, isn't it, that anything that we value above God then becomes an idol in our life. And so, it's another, it's another fun, let's go horizontally across to axiology. You can see what different idols might be. For one, in an atheist worldview, you. Do you value you more than God? Or do we value appeasing the spirits or honoring our elders above God? or happiness within postmodern. Doing like happiness and what that can also look like is, is comfort, or our own personal story, or our own personal life. Do we value that over and above following God? Or do we actually do the biblical worldview and we value relationship, love, forgiveness, repentance, and unity? It's just a really powerful exercise, I think. Um, and just a, a quick story. 
I was on mission last year at one of the universities that, that ours that I am, we travel a lot and go on mission. And I was speaking with a boy called Matt, and we were out and we were doing different worldview surveys. So we would do things similar to this. And he was really keen and really happy to take this worldview survey. So he answered a series of six questions on my iPad, and after he was done, up came his results. And his result was that he subscribed to an atheist worldview. I was like, oh, that's really interesting. He's like, oh, what are you? And I was like, oh, well, I'm a Christian. He's like, oh, I'm an atheist. I was like, oh, okay. And we were, ask we were talking about different things. And then I started asking him um, about love. I was like, well, what do you as an atheist think about love? And I was like, well, do you have a girlfriend? And he like went red in the face. I was like, I'm sorry, Matt, but do you? And um, he said, yep, I have a girlfriend. And I was like, well, tell me about that. And so we just got chatting. And, and he we were talking about different things. And I was like, well, what do you think about procreation? What, where do you think that love came from, from your, from your girlfriend? And I was like, because according, and I was reading to him from our, athe from our atheist worldview, um, from the chart, that atheists often believe that you, some atheists, I think there's a lot of different opinions out there. But oftentimes, I have friends who believe that, that actually you're with a partner for the procreation of your species. Is that right? Because that follows the worldview. And again, I know that there's different opinions and thought. And in this case, Matt said to me, no, I don't agree with that at all. He's like, I think that that's a really shallow idea of love. And I was like, great, tell me about it. And he said, well, I, I actually really love and care for my girlfriend, and I would be willing to lay down my life for her. I think that's what love is. And he went on to tell me about what he thinks about love. And I, and I said back to him, I was like, Matt, that is the most beautiful idea of love I've ever heard, but you're, but you're actually, do you know about Jesus? Like, I'm not trying to be annoying here, but literally, like, Jesus did lay down his life for love. Like, you've just done a much better job of talking about the gospel than I ever have. Like, where did you get that idea? And it was just such a funny thing. And his reaction, I will never forget, because he just went, he went blank. And it was such a beautiful moment, because he just was confused where, where I got to watch, and I didn't have to do anything but, but ask him a few questions about his worldview and then about love. And he's, he was like, this is inconsistent, but I, I know that I'm an atheist, but I know that I think this about love. And I watched as, as his own ideas were inconsistent in his own mind, and his face was so confused. And it was actually such a beautiful moment then when we could have a real conversation about what I thought about God and what he thought. And so talking about worldview really does open up these things. But it first takes a lot of listening to see where someone is at. But when you actually listen, when you listen to someone talk about their life or about their career or about their relationships, I think you would be hard-pressed to hear where they think maybe we've come from or where we're going. But I, but I assure you, what you will hear is what do they think is true or what do they think is of highest value. That will be really, that will be really, obvious in conversations, yeah? Right, so let's move on. Um, and let's just flip the question on its head for a minute. So we're asking the question, do all roads lead to God? But we could also, couldn't, we, couldn't there be one truth and many stories? Why should the presence of many religions lead to the rejection of one absolute truth? Could there be one truth about life, one truth about reality, but many, many stories of people trying to get back to that one truth? 
There are many stories throughout culture and through the centuries. We tell stories because we're human. The difference between men and animals is that we tell stories. So, if we're going to use the word story, let's just define it. And according to the Oxford Dictionary, um, it says that stories are accounts, real or imagined, of the past, present, or future, a report of news. So life is full of stories. We tell stories because we're human. We're hearing and telling stories all of the time. So, has anyone told a story today? Yeah? No? A few of you? Um, I, can I suggest that instruction manuals are stories, how to create something? So when you go to Ikea and they give you that beautiful booklet of how to put a chair together, and I can never figure out how to put the chair, that is a story, right? Of a beginning and a middle and an end. Or when someone asks you, how was your day? How do we respond? We tell them a story. So why do we tell stories? Why are there so many different religions and worldviews? Because we are, whether we realize it or not, searching for truth. We're trying to make sense of individuality in life. We're all characters in a much larger story of life. There's something bigger and greater than us out there, even if it's just history and time. And often people will stop me and say, oh, but Judy, how could you say there's something bigger than us out there? You're assuming that there's a God and you're assuming a lot of things, but actually, even leaving worldview and religion aside, just think about history. Before you were here, there was a lot of things going on. And long after we're all gone, unless Jesus comes back, there will still be things. Or think about time. What an incredible, isn't it mind-blowing to try to think about time? So there are things that are bigger than us. C.S. Lewis liked to use the word myth as he talked about this. But I think that often people, particularly in a postmodern worldview, get upset with the word myth. So I like to use stories. But what I'd like to say is all religions, worldviews, disciplines, philosophies, and paradigms are stories that help humanity explain reality. All religions, worldviews, disciplines, philosophies, and paradigms are stories that help humanity explain reality. So there are four main types of stories in literature, if anyone has studied literature. Has anyone studied it out here? Hand? Yeah, yeah, a few people. So, so there's four main stories that you hear. The first one is overcoming the monster. We're familiar with that one. The second is rags to riches, or like a Cinderella type of story. The third is a voyage or a quest, a mighty adventure. And finally, you have comedy and satire. This is humanity's way of trying to explain life through telling all of these stories. But if this is true, if we've always been telling stories, trying to make sense of reality, can anyone ever be sure that their way of making sense of life is true? So there's a very famous story within the conversation of worldview, and it's about elephants. So if you want to pop the picture up. So there was um, a man called Leslie Newbegin, and he was a British missionary to India for many years, and he wrote the book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And he tells a story, um, he, he actually tells the story of the elephant and then he pokes holes. Because often this story is told um, trying to claim that no one can know the truth. So I've often had conversation with my atheist friends, some very dear people, who will use this story and say, and this is why there is no absolute truth. But Leslie Newbegin actually poked holes in it. So first I'll tell you the story and then I'll show you the, the holes that he poked. So this is how the story goes. As you can see, there is an elephant and there are a number of blind priests or blind holy men that all have a different piece of the elephant. But because they're blind, they're all having different experiences. And the analogy goes that um, 
all of the religions, it's an analogy for the religions of the world and saying that, that religions all have a piece of the truth, but no one can know the whole truth. Yeah, and as the story goes, it's because, you know, the blind men are feeling different parts. So there's one, one blind man who's with the, the trunk of the elephant, and he says, oh, the elephant is very flexible and very long and very much like a tube. Yeah, and then there's another blind man who's at the, the foot of the elephant, and he says, no, no, an elephant is very much like the trunk of a tree. And then there's another blind man who's at the side of the elephant. He says, no, an elephant is like a vast canvas that you could paint upon. And then there's another at the end that's got his tail. And he says, no, um, an elephant is very bendy and has a bit of hair at the end. And so often people will use this to say, well, the different faiths of the world, Christianity and Judaism and Hinduism and Islam, they all have different pieces of the truth. But no one's actually seeing the whole elephant. But what is the problem with this story? Oh, you guys are still responding. That's fabulous. There is an elephant. So I think someone, I can't tell you said, but the problem with this is that where is the narrator in this story? If this is happening here, and if, there's the, if this is the elephant, and there's the, the, the blind holy man, where is the narrator? Up here, right? And how is it that if everyone in this story is blind, all of the holy men are blind, but the narrator can see everything. And also, everyone in this story, all of the holy men, can only see a part, can only feel, but the narrator sees the whole thing. Do you see the problem in the story? And these are the holes that were poked. The only way that you, the only way you could know that none of the blind men had a grip on the entire reality of the elephant was if you could see the whole elephant, if you assume you have the whole truth, which is the very thing you're saying that nobody's got. Do you see that? It is actually arrogant to say that all religions are equal or that there can't be any absolute truth. And it actually doesn't hold weight at, in itself as an argument. We have to ask the person, what is this absolute vantage point from which they can see? Tim Keller, the pastor and apologist from New York City says, the point here is that when you say that no one has a superior take on spirituality, that is a take on spiritual reality which you say is superior to everyone else's. Are you following that? Or when you say that no one should convert everybody else to your view of spiritual reality, that is a view of religious reality that you want the listener to convert to. You say that no one has this knowledge, so how do you say that you have this knowledge? Do you see the problem in this story? So essentially, all that we're trying to do is say that all religions are not the same a little bit of travel or a few conversations, or perhaps going through a worldview chart, will show you this, that there are massive differences. And I think that this is a really important point, that we have the right to disagree with each other, but not to be disagreeable. We have the right to disagree with each other, but not to be disagreeable. But the point is that all religions and worldviews are, are exclusive, and that's what we're trying to come to. And the religion that claims it is completely inclusive excludes everyone who isn't inclusive. Does that make sense? John Lennox, professor at Oxford, says, pluralism celebrates equal validity of religions while being intolerant of any religion that purports absolute truth. Or put in a simpler way, Ravi Zacharias says, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. 
At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or is not, and accordingly of defining life's purposes. So essentially, everyone has a take, and everybody thinks theirs is the best. Everybody has a set of exclusive beliefs, and therefore what matters is which set of exclusive beliefs can produce loving, inclusive, reconciling, peaceful behavior. So essentially, it's not arrogant to claim that we know the truth, because what, what we're trying to show through this elephant story is that everyone claims that they have the truth. Everyone has a worldview, everyone has a story, everyone has, a, has an idea of answering life's big questions. And so that might lead you to the question of, so what we're trying to do here is level the playing field. So if you can imagine that you are sitting in a coffee shop with your friend who's a non-believer, and they say, but it's arrogant for you to say that, all we're trying to do is level the playing field and say, actually, everyone has a belief. So then sometimes what they might bring back to you then is say, well, aren't Christians just as blind as everyone else? Which is a valid question, isn't it? So what would we say? What do we say? Well, one of the things that you could do in a really humble response is, yes, Christians were just as blind, or can be. And if our faith is based emotionally, or if it's based intellectually or practically, it is arrogant to say that we have found the truth. There are many persuasive stories of the reality of life from many different cultures and disciplines. Where is the end to endless interpretation about life and truth? So when they say, well, how do you as a Christian Know, that, that, know the truth. You can say the only way to be sure to know that your worldview is true, your story is true, is to meet the center of that worldview. And so think about that for just a second. How do you know any story is true? What's the best way? I would suggest the best way to know any story is true is to meet the author. Ask the author. The only way to find the true meaning of any story is to meet the author himself. Now, we as humanity denied the existence of and the need for an author for life, didn't we? And we wonder why we're battling for meaningless. We're confused, weak, searching for identities. Only the author of life has the right to explain reality. Only the author can explain meaning, purpose, and significance of all human life. Only the author has the right to say, this is why I wrote it. This is the meaning. And the message of Christianity, of the biblical worldview, is that the author of life wrote himself into the story. Isn't that amazing? Christianity is called good news. There is a real God out there. He is a personal God who is love. And the God of love is the author of life itself. Christians don't just believe this story about the author of life. We don't believe it as just one more fairy tale, do we? We are confident that it's true. Why? Because the author of the story wrote himself into the story. Isn't that just incredible? I can't stop telling people about this, people who've never met. Can you imagine that God is real and he's the author of the entire universe and of each one of our lives here and of millions of lives and he came down to earth as a man as a baby, no less, in complete humility, in Bethlehem, and we all know the story. Would you like to sing some Christmas carols now? I'm game. Isn't that amazing? 
But honestly, honestly, sometimes you just say that to people. You're like, what do you think those Christmas carols are about? The reason that we have such a hope from a biblical worldview is because we've met the author, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you can't separate a story from its author, can you? All of history has been marked with the imprints from this author of life. Think about this. Sometimes when we read a book and we just love it, and then you read another book, and you can tell it's by the same author, can't you? And how can you tell? Because their fingerprints are all over the story. Or think about movies that you've seen. You see a Steven Spielberg film, and he's your favorite director. Does anyone like Steven Spielberg? No one. Okay, fine. (laughs) And then you see another movie, and you can recognize it, can't you? Why? Because you can't separate an author from it. His fingerprints are all over that story. God has come to us. This is the main difference between the Christian story and every other faith, religion, or worldview. And I think that this is a really powerful point. All of the other worldviews, there's something that you have to do, or you have to think, or you have to feel in order to get to X, Y, or Z, isn't there? And you, can, and you don't have to take my, world, my, my word on it. You can do a worldview chart. Look into the other religions. Ask those questions. There's often something you have to do, something you need to think, or something you need to feel in order for karma to outweigh dharma, in order to get to the end to where you want to be. But the message of Christianity is that the God of love loved us first and came to earth. And there's nothing that we can do. He's done it all. That's not to say that we don't live out our Christian life in practical ways, but that is such a radical message. This is the reason the Christian is confident about the truth about God, because God came to us. 1 John 4 verse 10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. It's beautiful, isn't it? So it's not arrogant if you've met the author And it's not arrogant if the author has told you what the story is about. In literature, it's actually the only way to shut down other interpretations. So often, as we're in conversations with people, a really simple question we can ask is, have you investigated the claims that Jesus Christ makes about himself? And you can just ask that. You can say, actually, you can meet the author yourself. Have you read his teachings? Have you looked at the things he accomplished? Make yourself sure you know the truth about life and God in an intellectually honest way. And we do that as Christians, don't we? So all we're doing is encouraging those that don't believe yet to introduce themselves to the author. See how he fulfilled prophecy. Show the evidence that Jesus claimed to be God, the teaching, the miracles, the prophecy that isn't all made up. But also, look at the resurrection. Jesus authenticated his claim of being God through the resurrection. And there's a lot that I could say about that, um, uh, about the resurrection. That's a whole other talk itself, but it's, it's, such, it's such a powerful thing. But what we're trying to say is, for the Christian, truth is deeply personal, found and authenticated in Jesus Christ. For the Christian, truth is deeply personal, found and authenticated in Jesus Christ. Our faith is not a blind or arrogant acceptance of ideas, but a confident decision to trust a person. 
So let's just think about that for a second. And as we're talking about other worldviews, often, and I find, um, I actually came to faith in an intellectual way. So I love talking about ideas and other worldviews and cultures. But that's actually, at the end of the day, not what we're doing. Our faith is not a blind or arrogant acceptance of ideas, but a confident decision to trust a person who is Jesus Christ. So then, as you're in a conversation with a non-believer, what they might then logically ask you is, well, can I trust this person? All right, if I get so far as to believe there is an author of life and he's written himself into the story, is he trustworthy? And they might say these answers still leave serious doubt about the nature and character of a God who leaves such a narrow path to himself. Well, what do we say to that? Well, I'm going to read a C.S. Lewis quote. C.S. Lewis says in his book, Mere Christianity, if you're a Christian, you do not have to believe that all the other religions are simply wrong all through. If you are an atheist, you do have to believe that the main point in all the religions of the world is simply one huge mistake. If you are a Christian, you are free to think that all those religions, even the strangest ones, contain at least some hint of the truth. As in arithmetic, there is only one right answer to a sum, and all other answers are wrong. But some of the wrong answers are much nearer being right than others. Does the presence of many mean that there could never be one truth or one God? As Christians, we defend the biblical truth that Jesus is the only way to God, don't we? And it's our joy. As Christians, we defend the biblical truth that Jesus is the only way to God. We also passionately trust there are as many different ways to Jesus as the people who come. I remember earlier this year, I was sitting in a classroom in Oxford, and the tutor asked us, how do people come to know, how do people come to give their lives to Jesus? And what do you think happened? Well, it was Oxford, so of course a debate ensued. And some people said, well, obviously you have to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. God has to come to you first, right? And other people said, that is true, but if you don't intellectually work things out, you need, to, you need to reason it out and you need to know the story of Jesus and then you can have an encounter. And other people were like, no, you can have a dream about him and then you give your life. And then others were saying, well, couldn't you just experience God through the love of Christian brothers and sisters? So what is the right answer? How do people come to Jesus? in many different ways, I heard someone say. How, let's think of it this way, how did you come to Jesus? How are we coming to Jesus? I think that there are as many different stories as there are people. As Christians, we defend the biblical truth that Jesus is the only way to God. We also passionately trust there are as many different ways to Jesus as the people who come. Jesus is the one path to God because he is God himself. The life and character of Jesus, his view that his love is for everyone, we believe that there must be as many different ways to him as people that walk the earth. Maybe there are so many different stories about reality and truth, about beauty and justice, morality, not because we could never know one truth, but because the God of the universe, the author of the story of life, wants to know every one of us in a personal way. The author of life wants to know every one of us in a personal way. And he uses every outlet to make himself known to the end of history. So what I'd love to encourage you with is that whoever you're speaking with, 
whatever worldview they come from, is what I really challenge myself to do is to be really good listeners and to love people because we're Christians and that's our charge, isn't it? And we should really ask ourselves the questions, do we love them and do we care about the lost? And so in finishing up with my talk, what I would really love to share with you is actually a word that I got this morning. I woke up and I was praying for us tonight, knowing that we were going to meet together as a family, knowing you were going to be welcoming me to be your speaker. And I really felt the Lord press something on my heart, which I think is a word for all of us. And what he was asking me is, do we really care about the lost? But do we really care about the lost? I remember a time when I was at my church in Chicago, I remember God saying to me, do you care about the poor? And I was like, yeah, no, of course I care about the poor. It's in the Bible and we're supposed to, and he's like, no, but Judy, do you really care about the poor? And I remember answering him and, and saying, actually, no. I really don't, to be honest. I find it uncomfortable and sometimes they smell bad and I'm embarrassingly, I don't care. And I remember going through a season with the Lord of him teaching me and breaking my heart for the poor and showing me how blind I had been. And I'm bringing this question to us tonight, do we really care about the lost? Have you ever been lost? No one. No one's ever been lost, just me. Well, I will tell you a story about how I was lost. I was coming out of O'Hare Airport in Chicago. Has ever, anyone ever been to O'Hare? It's similar to Heathrow, lots of you. It's similar to Heathrow. It's massive, isn't it? And I was about 20 years old, and I, was try I had dropped a friend off, and I was trying to get back to my university, and I couldn't. I just kept going around in the same circles, and then I think I came over here. And then I started running low on petrol. Of course I did. And then I, I had been drinking a bottle of water, and then I started needing the blue. So I called my mom, who's four hours away, mind you, in Iowa. I was like, Mom, I'm lost. Please, can you help me? And she said, no, I don't know. I don't know where you are, and I don't know where you're trying to go. I can't help. But I was like, Mom, but I'm running low on petrol, and I have to use the loo. And I just kept going around and around. And you know what? I was so scared. It's awful, isn't it? It's not nice to be lost. Or can any of you remember, or do you have kids, do you remember being lost in the grocery store? Do you remember that? Being so little and then losing your mom or dad and being lost. It's awful, isn't it? As an, as an adult, we know that, okay, hopefully I'll get petrol, hopefully I'll find a loo, and, and I did eventually get back to Chicago. But as a small, small child, actually, if you lose your mom or dad, that's it, isn't it? It's really scary. And the Bible talks about this, that, well, the Bible talks about what? It talks about the lost sheep, talks about the lost coin, and talks about the lost son. The Bible spends a lot of time talking about lost things. And can I just put it to you that being lost is awful. And we are so privileged to be here as a family, here talking about the big questions, talking about worldviews and about God. And there are so many people that we know and that we love, don't we? And that we don't know yet, who are lost and scared and confused and can't find their way. And in the midst of that, Jesus says what? He says, I am the way, the truth and the light. Jesus says, I am the way, 
So in a world full of people that are lost, and some of them happily lost, maybe, but lots of them scared and confused and blind and lost, Jesus says, I am the way. And I think it's just such incredible good news. So what I'd love to do with our remaining time, actually, is let's just take a time and actually respond to that and pray about that. So if we could, we're just going to take, we're just going to pray together. And then we'll break up into groups. But will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you so much for those that are in our lives, for our Christians, brothers, and sisters. And Father, I thank you as well for the people that are in my life who don't know you yet, for my family members, for my friends, for those that I study with, for those that I work with. And Father, we lift up those people to you now, the people that don't know you, that come from different worldviews, but that are lost. And Father, we, we pray for them. We ask that they would come to know you in a really real and true way. We cry out to you for them. And Father, we also ask that you would break our hearts now in your name. Father, I ask in a really real way that you would give me a heart for the lost, that I would genuinely care. Father, that you would teach me how to listen more, that you would teach me how to set aside time in my schedule to actually sit down and have a conversation. Father, that you would show me who it is that you want me to speak to. And thank you, Jesus, that you are the author of life and that you go before us. Thank you for this in your name, Jesus. Amen. And what we're going to do is we're going to actually have a time of question and answers. But before we do that, um, I think it would be great if we could just break up into groups of about two or three with the people that are next to you. Um, and go ahead and pray about that. If you want to receive more prayer for yourself, about your heart for the lost or about evangelism, or just go ahead and pray for the people. What, I'm, what I feel like the Lord is saying is that he's probably brought faces to mind. There are probably people that you know in your life now that you want to have conversations with. And so go ahead and pray for yourself for a heart for the lost, or go ahead and pray for those, pray for those people. And then in a little bit, we'll come back and take question and answers. Is that all right? Okay. Okay.